Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. I'll be your host today, Joshua, and I'll be speaking with Dr. Donna Stoneham. So Donna is the author of The Thriver's Edge, Seven Keys to Transform the Way You Live, Love, and Lead, and a contributor to the anthology Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis, Women Writers Respond to the Call. And she has a new book, Catch Me When I Fall, Poems of Mother Loss and Healing, which is coming out on May 9th. Additionally, over the span of her 30-year career in leadership development, she has coached hundreds of leaders, teams, and executives, guiding them to live more fulfilling, authentic lives while expressing their gifts in the world. She has also worked for 12 years part-time as a chaplain and hospice chaplain, providing spiritual end-of-life care in nursing homes and assisted living centers. And you can find more about Donna at DonnaStoneham.com. So Donna, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here, Joshua. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to sort of meet new people. And I always try to, you know, just look at and try to find more information about them. And so going on your website was very helpful because you have a, a longer bio. And one of the things I really thought that was really interesting was that you've been a spiritual seeker for a very long time. And a lot of the the wisdom you got really started when you had a near-death experience as an adolescent. And that wisdom has really seemed to help you in your grief journey and also putting together this new book. So just wondering if you could talk about that experience and really finding that spiritual center within yourself. Absolutely. So when I was 15, I experienced a near-death experience and I found myself as I was losing consciousness, I was traveling through this cylinder of beautiful, vibrant white light, but it was very calming. And I ended up on the a riverbank and there was a white haired gentleman there. And I looked over and I realized that it was my grandfather who was the only person that uh, had died in my family at that time. He and my other grandfather. And I never met him, but I'd seen pictures of him in our living room. So as he was reaching out his hand to me, an apparition of Jesus appeared. And I was very familiar with Jesus because I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the panhandle of Texas. I'd seen lots of pictures of Jesus everywhere. I mean, the sort of classic Jesus pictures that we saw, white Jesus. He was standing there and he put his arm out and his hand, his palm facing me. And very firmly, he said, no, it's not your time. You have work to do. You have to go back. And I remember thinking, I've never felt so rejected in my entire life. I mean, if Jesus tells you no, that's kind of a big deal. So I awakened in the hospital, um, having my stomach pumped. Uh, It was a suicide attempt. But that experience 
really opened my eyes to how thin the veil is between here and there. And it gave me a great reassurance that when we die, that's not it. So I didn't need to have so much fear about death. Maybe how I died, but not death itself. That was very reassuring and and really opened me to this communication that I've been able to have with my mother since she passed five years ago, which has been profound and has really radically altered my life and my beliefs about the world and about the afterlife and about what our job is here to do. Wow. I'm saddened that you had so much suffering that you tried to take your life, but it's very interesting that you had that experience to really, I would think, shape who you are today and try to make sense of life and maybe some of the suffering that we do go through in life. Because if that's real, then it's like it gives you an understanding of maybe what is this about? You know, it kind of reshapes, I think, our perspectives. And we had, um, which you may know, Dr. Raymond Moody, who was on the podcast. And he really talked about how common these themes are about like being in the light and seeing deceased loved ones, a sense of presence. And for you to sort of see Jesus and say, it's not your time. It's interesting you felt rejected rather than feeling right. It's not my time. What do I need to do? And so with that moving forward, when did it start to shift? Was it really um, the last five years or were you using that experience to try to make sense of the world you now live in? You know, I was 15 at the time, so I was I was pretty young, but I have always had a very deep connection to my creator, even as a little girl. I remember literally being like nine years old, standing in my window one night looking at the moon because I thought God lived on the moon in a mansion. So when the moon was out, I could have all my little conversations, you know, and I remember saying at age nine, I think you made a mistake. I'm not sure these are my people or this is my place. And so, you know, I had a lot of trauma in in my childhood. So it took me a long time to integrate that. But that's also when I started writing poetry when I was a little girl. So I've been a poet my whole life. And it's always been a way of me both connecting with the divine and making meaning about what's happening in my life. So certainly since my mother died five years ago, it's become even more pronounced and more profound than ever before, because that was my greatest loss that I've ever ever faced. And so I'd love to hear more about your mother. Like, who was she? Tell me just about a little bit about her and then also um, how she died and what that has been like for you. Well, my mother and I had a really challenging relationship until maybe the last 10 years of her life, largely because I wasn't who she wanted me to be. My mother was very religious. She had certain belief systems that I didn't agree with. We were very different politically. Uh, And she was homophobic. And so that was really challenging for me growing up. But I will say that in the last 10 years of her life, and particularly the last 27 months when she lived near my wife and I, we moved her here from Texas that um, we had a miraculous healing. And that just continued even more so after she passed. So she actually became my guide through my grief from the other side of her loss. So, you know, none of it makes a whole lot of analytical sense, but I trusted it. And there's been, I have 
200 pages of conversations we've had over the five years of things she told me about what it's like over there, about what I need to do over here, about how she can help me. It just It's been really an amazing journey. And so my book is very much about the journey, my, my grief journey. It's about my dreams. It's about meditations. It's about conversations. It's And it's poetry that expresses the places in the grief and letters to my mother and her words back to me. Wow, there's a, a lot there. So you had such an interesting experience, a, com- a complicated yeah. relationship for them to have this these moments near the end and now to help you with your own grief. And how does that for you make it all make sense? Because she had such a strong opinion and those models and how you see her would are being stretched. It all started before she died. So literally in the last few years of her life, I got the mother I always wanted. And a lot of it, I think, was due to the fact that she, first of all, she moved to California and she was with people she'd never been with before. It was a whole different kind of culture, cultural ethos that she was part of. Her best friend ended up being an agnostic Jew who marched with Martin Luther King in California. Well, I don't think that ever would have happened where she was living before. That was one thing. So her mind started expanding with new experiences, ethnic food, things she had never experienced before. The other thing that happened was as she began to lose her cognitive function, she had Alzheimer's. Her, As her mind started to wane, her heart really started to open. And she stopped being as judgmental, as critical, all that stuff, and, and deeply appreciative of everything that my wife and I were doing to help her and support her. And so the the transition in our relationship started before she left, before she passed away. But it's even become more pronounced. And as she said, you know, from the other side, honey, I know so many things now I didn't know then. I can really help you now in all the ways you needed when I was there that I couldn't because I didn't know. So we'd had a, a really big, huge forgiveness with one another and acceptance of one another before she passed, but it's just become even more profound. And she literally has become my teacher and my connection to the divine since she's, since she died. Wow. That's beautiful. And it's nice to sort of really sort of see how people can change over time with new experiences. And I think it's interesting that you said as her mind started to decrease with dementia, her heart started to open. I think that's very fascinating to just really pause and think about, you know, (laughs) the thing that's supposed to be helping us, the the cognitive mind is the thing that's actually hindering us from love most of the time because of our models or judgments and how we sort of, our our perspectives on the world. And once that starts to deteriorate, this other force that's underneath the whole time is coming out. And I think that's really beautiful. I was wondering if you could share some of the insights and some of the wisdom that you've I know included in your book and in poetry and in in her letters. So some of the stuff you've learned about your own just grief in general, and then just your walk on this world. Yeah, sure. Well, I think there's so much. It's really hard to, um, in many ways, to encapsulate it in sound bites. But I will say, I think it might be helpful to start with the dream I had and how that has really over five years, revealed itself with meaning to to begin to answer your question. About six months before mama died, 
I was having lucid dreams periodically. Maybe I had three or four, all the same thing, just as I was falling asleep of entering this very dark portal. And I knew because I've had very prescient dreams throughout my life that something really big was about to happen, that there was going to be some kind of life altering event ahead. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was coming. I could feel it. And three months before she died, I had a dream about driving a car up the side of a mountain. And every time I would turn the car to the left, some force would pull it to the right. And then I would steer it to the left. This mysterious force would drag it to the right. And this went on up the whole side of the mountain. And I was exhausted in the dream. And all of a sudden, I looked out and there was a black wolf tethered to my car. And I realized it was the wolf that had been taking the car back and forth. Interestingly enough, I was pulling to the left. It was pulling to the right. So that's all you need to say about that. Anyway, I accidentally hit the wolf and it was on the side of the road. I got out of the car to see what I could do. It was bleeding from its mouth. I knew it was going to die. And I woke up from that dream incredibly disturbed and it was so vivid. So three months later, my mother has an incident at her assisted living center where she lived. And they called me and they said she's on her way by ambulance to the hospital. We found her lying in a pool of blood in her room. So I thought, you know, she probably broke her hip or something. I get to the ambulance. She's there. She's lucid. She puts her hands out, hand out to me. She says, what would I do without you? What would I have done without you? We take her in to the hospital and they ask if she knows where she is. And she says, I think I'm in the coming home place. And I thought, now that's strange. What does that mean? Anyway, the next they did it, they discovered that she had a bleeding ulcer and they did a repair on her stomach the next morning. And that night I was with her, I was combing her hair. And all of a sudden, her eyes rolled back in her head, and she leaned her head over and just started vomiting blood everywhere. And the patch they had done didn't seal adequately, and they couldn't save her life. So I remember that being this horrifying moment for me, most horrifying moment I'd ever had in my life, to be so helpless and watch someone you love suffer so much. And in that moment, I said, oh, my God, mama was the black in my dream. That was what it was about. And so after she died, I came to, I mean, I love my dreams. I've had so many. I have notebooks of them over my lifetime. And I always try to understand what they mean. So I, you know, dream interpretation books, et cetera, et cetera. And I came to understand that the black wolf in Native American tradition pretends death, but it's also can be a guide. And it can be the guide to help us find and own our power. And so as long as she was alive, I was sort of in her shadow. And I realized once she died, not well, this took months and years even to realize that she had to die in order for me to live. And in if I may, I'll just share a couple of, of verses of this last poem in my book which says, you taught me that love is the balm that mends all wounds, that rights all wrongs, that restores and heals across life and death, heaven and earth, this world and the next. 
You promised me when you left this earth that someday I'd feel whole again. I didn't realize then what I know now, that you had to leave so that I could learn how to give birth to myself. And so maybe three months ago, okay, so this is now over five years later, I was having a meditation one day and I got really clearly, the black wolf had to die so that both of you could live. And so one of the things my mother has shared many times with me is that my work here is to learn how to create heaven on earth and that she is there to help teach me what that means, what that looks like. And basically it's all about love, right? And how do we, how do we share love and the vibration of love in everything we do? And she couldn't be who she needed to be here. She could only do her work from there but I could still do my work from here with her tutelage and support. So that that's sort of the, the circle of that story of that dream. And I had to pass through that portal of grief to come through that. And that's what the book is about is that portal of grief. Wow. What you're saying is like with love being like the ultimate healing bomb, I think you're saying in the, in the poem, or the strongest medicine to heal all wounds. I'm guessing love is one of the things that you've been using in your grief journey or trying to formulate that love that's maybe been helping through your grief. Could you talk about a little bit about processing your grief through this new kind of lens? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think that it was interesting. I'm I'm doing my virtual book launch in a few weeks, and I had a conversation with two of my author friends who've had a lot of loss and they're going to join me and we're having a conversation and a dialogue on uh, grief as a transformational force in our lives. And I really do believe that grief, it does and will transform you, whether you want it to or not. It's just the nature of grief. But I think what has been so helpful to me as I've processed my grief and really the deepest grief I had was just getting the mother I always yearn for and then having her leave, right? It was like, wait a minute. This is not, this This is really painful that I just got this thing I've yearned for my whole life and now it's gone. But it wasn't gone. And that's what I think I've learned because my mother has been so present. Signs, signals, I mean, in the beginning, I would literally get in the car and there'd be five signs that she was there or she shows up. She's there. When I need her, I feel her presence. And what she told me about the afterlife, she said, it's a place of immeasurable love. And that immeasurable love is eternal. It's transcendent. It does not die when we die. It's who we are at our core, at our essence. And so I think focusing on that through my grief journey, which was really arduous, in the beginning. And my mother told me maybe a month or so after she died in one of our conversations, she said, you know, honey, it's going to take you a year or two to feel whole again. And so that was a great barometer for me to know. And it literally was like 15 months when I um, I was like, oh, okay. I think I'm I think I'm exiting this really dark part of the portal. Always going to be a part of me, but I'm the the worst of it, the the debilitating part of it is over. So that was that was big. Um, 
it was interesting because Christmas, she died in February and the following Christmas, we took the kids to Colorado to ski. And I, I was coming down the hill and I was just, I was thinking while I was, you know, coming down the last round of the day, you know what? I think I've got this now. I think I can go back and next year is going to be great. And I'm not going to be mourning so much. And I'm going to feel so much better. And bam, I hit an ice patch. I did a roll, 360 roll, landed on my head, passed out. I was out for about five minutes. And as I was waking up, I saw these beautiful clouds and I thought I was in heaven or whatever it is after we die. And I was like, yay, I get to spend Christmas with mama in heaven. And it ended up, I had a severe concussion. If I hadn't had a helmet on, I would have died. And I took the next nine months in rehab to learn how to walk properly, to regain my balance, to get my eyes to focus together. So I wasn't yet ready, but I was trying to rush the process. And I think that's the thing I've learned more than anything else is that grief has its own timeline. And, you know, we just have to surrender to us or it bites us later. You know, it's going to get us one way or the other if we don't work with it instead of against it. I like that. And I like sort of how you sort of mentioned you're trying to rush the process, knowing there's like this, I don't know, this place you want to be in, and then you try to go there. I think people, even like spiritual people call it like spiritual leapfrogging, where you're trying to go faster through the emotions than you possibly can. And so it really is like sitting with those emotions, being patient, as you're saying. Um, But I really sort of understand that like um, in my own life too it's just really trying to value the human experience and the emotions that come with it and grief is a part of being human in such a way where we try to i don't know the western culture really tries to deny that aspect and so it can be difficult to process that in this culture and so i was just curious so how did you process some of your grief i know you said you wrote some poetry did you ever go to like a support group or anything like that yes i did i am I went to a bereavement group through hospice about seven or eight months after my mother died. And then I saw a bereavement counselor for a while after that, maybe six months. That was very, very helpful. And my writing was helpful. I learned early on in the process that I could no longer keep up the schedule I had I had kept up for years. And so I was really judicious about how I scheduled my time and my, you know, I work with people all the time and I'm the helper. I'm the one who supports people. So I had to, I learned there was things I needed for me, self-care rituals. I needed to, I would sit, we live, we have a beautiful view of the Bay, San Francisco Bay. And I would sit in the chair and watch the hawks fly because my mother often would show up as a hawk. Right. And so I would watch and circle above me and do dances and sit on the trees outside and stuff that we'd never seen before. Right. And so I would I would just sit every day in the corner and just be for sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes two hours. I just needed that. I had to rest. I had a nap. Um, Walks in nature were incredibly helpful to me. And then you know, talking to people that I knew could sit with me and be with me in grief. And I came to found that a lot of people in my circle couldn't do it. People that I thought would have been able to. And then some people I least expected showed up and I formed wonderful friendships with. So as I have told many people who are in a place of grief, you've got to find what works for you. And it's your time to be selfish 
it's your time to ask for what you need and do the things you need to do that are healing and nurturing. My mama told me one time, she said, honey, I know you don't feel good. I know you're really sad, but you got to get out of the bed and go do something that makes you feel just a little bit better. So she said, go dig in the dirt, go plant a plant or go for a walk or, you know, so I think calibrating our grief is also really important. Knowing when to take a break is it's going to be there till it's not right. Yeah. It comes up. Like as you sort of move forward, I still have these moments where the grief comes up in, you know, very interesting times in my life and just honoring that. And I've learned to honor that, but like what you said about really taking time to slow down and yes. to not be, try to be who you used to be. And it, it takes those moments. Like a lot of times I mean, for me, anyways, it's like, you want to be productive and you want to like make time matter, quote unquote. So you want to do things and you want to work on your grief. But a lot of times like with grief, it's, but it's just sitting be more present with the moment that is rather than trying to do things as you move forward. So I thought that was a really interesting comment you made because I'm like, yeah, that's so true. Like, that's really what I do too. When I sort of sit or or walk, I think of my dad, it's just like, I'm not, it doesn't seem like I'm doing anything, but I think I'm doing a lot. It's just a reflection and just sitting and just like being in the moment of what that means. I know we got Mother's Day coming up in North America anyways. And what do those, these moments do to you having these holidays, I guess, or celebrations for a mother. So how do you honor your mother in those days? Is there something that you do? Yeah. So, you know, from February through Mother's Day is kind of my grief cycle. Because my mother was born in February. She died in February. She loved Easter. And then there was Mother's Day. So that sort of time marker is time that I really know, at least so far, this is the fifth year of that for me. And so one of the things I wanted to do this year was get this book out for Mother's Day to honor my mother, to hopefully provide comfort and solace for people who had lost their mother. And Mother's Day is really hard. You know, the first one was super hard for me. And that year I bought, I went and bought a, so my mother's buried in Texas. I live in California. So I went and bought a, an angel statue. And put it on our terrace where I used to sit with her near her garden bench. And I would just go out, sit out there and talk to her. So that's there now. And then I bought a stone that goes underneath it that honors her, that has her name on it. And I try to do something that she would love, like go for a walk in nature. Go One year we went to the art museum to see a Monet exhibit at the Kimball that we I'd seen with her in Fort Worth years ago, right? So it's, I try to do things that I know she would love and enjoy. And this year in particular, I really wanted to honor her. But that's why we picked the date, this pub date for this book. I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful to be able to do something so significant in the world and honor her at the same time with everything that said she's been teaching you and that you've learned throughout your your lifetime to really put into this book to, to help others trying to work through and uh, and sit with their own grief and normalize some of the feelings that they're having because it can be very scary. I also uh, want to sort of bring up dreams of the deceased since you've had all these types of communication with your mother. Did you have any dreams of her? Were they positive? Were they negative? How did that all go? Since I know you're interested in dreams too. So what was your, I guess, perspective on the dreams that you had or or didn't? I've had a number of dreams with her. Just a few that that I can recall. I mean, the one, the big one I told you about, the dream of the black wolf, that was huge. But um, 
I've I've had a few dreams. One was she shortly after she died. So my mom, as I mentioned, had this best friend at the assisted living center. Her name was Adeline. And maybe it was three or four weeks after she died. I had a dream in which it was like a beautiful Maxfield Parish painting almost setting. Beautiful hues of pastels everywhere, luscious green lawn, white granite, gorgeous building. And I heard my mother's voice. I didn't see her, but I heard her voice. And she said, honey, it's me. And I was like, wow. And she said, I want you to tell Adeline that I'm here waiting when she's ready. I'm here to help her adjust. Make sure she gets the message. So I'm like, okay, that's weird. What's Adeline going to think when I tell her my dead mother has come and given me this message for her? So we had lunch. Adeline and I had lunch like two days later, which was already scheduled. And I told her about the dream and Adeline said, well, you know, Donna, I've never believed in the afterlife, but if your mother's there, I think I need to change my mind. So that was one. So sometimes they were really instructive dreams. Another dream, a few weeks after that, she showed up at our house and she was wearing two pairs of glasses. Now, normally my mother, wore, she had macular degeneration. She was legally blind. So she had always wore glasses and she had to look out of the side of her eye to see things. And she knocked on the door, I opened the door and I, I was, mama, it's you. And I threw my arms around her and she threw her arms around me. But it was kind of like, why are you so, you know, over emotional almost from her? I saw the two pairs of glasses and she wore two watches at the end of her life because she, she was afraid one of them wouldn't keep the right time. So if she had two, then she could double check. Right. So, um, I, I freaked out because I was like, oh, my gosh, we've already sold all our stuff. We've, we've gotten rid of our stuff. I have all our bags of clothes in the garage. We've, we don't have our apartment anymore. What are we going to do? She's going to be so upset she doesn't have anywhere to go. And then she kind of just disappeared in the dream. And I later came to realize she has two pairs of glasses because she now has a spiritual lens and an earthly lens to look through. And she wanted me to know that. Like, I got this now. You know, like, don't worry about it. Another dream I had, I was buying her a sweater in Carmel, where a Christmas sweater, where a kitschy Christmas sweater. She loved those. And um, this was in the summer, like after she died in February. And she shows up in the store. And I said, Mama, what are you doing here? How'd you get here? And she said, well, Jack drove me. And that was my stepfather. He had died eight years before she did. He just he drove me. And I said, why are you here now? I thought you weren't coming until Christmas. And she said, I figured you needed me now. So you needed me more now. So, you know, that was one just to remind me that she was there, not to worry. She was, you know, she had my back. So, yes, I, I've had a lot of dreams with her, with those themes, either an instruction or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here for you or um, many, many different kinds of dreams with her. Wow, that's beautiful to hear. You having those those moments also within the dream. It's got to be great to also, I think, see her when you do see yeah, her, or to totally. like, you know, like it, those moments mean something. And so I'm curious when you have those dreams, do they reflect the similar kind of peace that you had when you had your near death experience? Is there like a similarity to those experiences? Yes, I, I mean, I'm always sometimes I'm sad because it was so great to hug her, and I can smell her. I can, you know, it's just all the sensory stuff in a dream that you have. And it's like, oh, no, it was just a dream. She's not really here. But then I remind myself, yes, she is. She's so totally here all the time. And, you know, then then it's like 
a great sense of peace and solace comes over me. You know, just as an example, this wasn't a dream, but on her birthday, which was sad, and it was this, you know, we had like 87 atmospheric rivers in California or however many, a gazillion of them. It was just basically raining for three months here solid. And it was a rainy day and I was walking our dog and I was, I had tears coming down because I was really missing her and I was talking to her in my head, you know, it's your birthday. It's been five years. And, and all of a sudden I looked out and, you know, I mentioned hawks earlier, but maybe, I don't know, a long way away really long way away, I saw a hawk. And you don't usually see them at that time of the year. And then I I saw it. And the next thing I knew, it headed directly for us. And it came right over our heads, maybe 100, 200 feet, and circled three times, and then flew away the other direction. And I just started weeping. And I was like, thank you, mama. I know you're okay. Thank you for coming. Thank you for telling me that you're okay. And happy birthday. And thank you for my birthday gift on your birthday to know you're still here. So you know, I, yeah, it always takes me to that place of peace. Because Joshua, I think that place of peace is a measurable love. And that's what my mother tells me time and time again, is there, and that we can have access to here, if we focus on that in our lives. I like that. It's like redefining what love is. And what I like about the near-death experiences, and also some of the dreams of the deceased, is that when they are that comforting, peaceful quality, you can sort of get a bearing on what's possible. Like if I always sort of say, if you can have that feeling in your dream, why not have it in a waking life? And so the goal is a lot of times we don't. And so then we start questioning, why is that? And like, what what's holding us back? Because it's there, it's present, it's attainable, but what's holding us back? Then you start analyzing your culture, your beliefs, your past, your traumas, like all this sort of stuff that, you know, have I, is there work that can be done in all those areas, our fears? Like, and so it's a, it can be a difficult path, finding the right path or finding the way towards that. And it's a lot of it's, I think, trial and error. I know for my part, it has been because like, you know, who's there to teach you? You're on like, we're all, our paths are very all unique in the sense of all of our experiences are very unique and same with our, our dreams are unique too. But yeah, I really like to sort of reflect on that, to say like, yeah, like we can, there's another level of love we can feel. Yes. And just because someone dies doesn't mean the relationship has to end. I mean, that has been the greatest solace for me, but we have to be open to it, right? I think that's the thing. You know, I was having this conversation with these women who are going to be at my virtual book launch, and and one of them said to me, I found your book so incredibly comforting, and then I found myself feeling jealous, and I felt jealous because I want to have that with my mother, and I don't, and I said, well, you know, sometimes I think with my mother, the re- I said, first of all, my mother was Irish. She was really stubborn. And we had just come to this place of this really wonderful relationship that we both really wanted to have for her whole life with me. And I said, I think she's just uber insistent that she gets to do her job now. And maybe your mother had already done it with you while she was here. So, you know, we laughed and made a joke about that. But I I do think what I encourage people to do is just try to do your best to stay really open to signs and signals and messages. And if you are, if you keep your heart open and you keep your mind open, amazing things can happen. And a lot of times too, we don't know. 
Like, as you said, like, we, we're just making jokes or theories. We don't really know. It's like, same thing with these dreams of the seas. Why are some people having these dreams frequently and other people's once in their entire life? Like, we just don't have enough information or knowledge about that yet, but we can sort of talk about the impact that these dreams can have in someone's life. And the same thing with this. Like, some people have these experiences more than others. Like, but when we compare, we can get jealous and stuff like that. But I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from each other um, and to not sort of feel down on ourselves or just think it's a reflection of a relationship in any way. It's just, there's things we don't understand. And will we ever, I don't know, you know, this is the, the world we live in. A lot of it is based on trying to find your own way and having faith and surrendering and all this sort of stuff. And based on your spiritual practices, your culture and how you understand the world, like there's just different ways up the same mountain, I guess, to reach and try to obtain love while i guess here in these moments um so i think it's lovely that so like you're you're on this journey and you're really at a moment in time where you can really put it out and really help people maybe find their way or to give them hope that there is more to this life or that love is there or that if they you know like how they sort of perceive their grief uh, as they work through that because you know loss is such a common aspect of life and so it's just like we need more of these resources out there for people to sort of pick up and acknowledge the, the truth about life is that, you know, we need to honor this, these emotions, but there is a way through it. We don't have to be afraid of it. Like we can actually work with this. Yeah. It can be, it can be life changing, which is that it's been for you. And so our final question that we always like to ask on a podcast is if you have a dream tonight of someone who has passed, it could be your mother or someone else. What would that dream look like to you? Well, I think getting to choose who comes to visit you is awesome. And probably I would choose a dream with my grandmother, my mother's mother, who was incredibly present. And literally I felt her presence taking my mother's hand when she died. And she was my safe haven as a child. She was the reason I did not die because when I attempted suicide, I didn't want to do that to her. So I called a friend who told my parents who got me to the hospital and I didn't die. She was my way shower to love in its purest, most unconditional form as a child. And one time since my mother died, I had a dream of her. Literally, she was a baby in my arms, but she was my grandmother with her face. And so she is so imbued in my DNA and my the way I see the world. I would love to have her come and visit me tonight. And just let me know whatever she wants to share, just because I love her so much. I mean, I have her and my mother up on my desk. You know, their pictures are here. And they both are incredibly inspirational to me now. And she shaped my mother and she shaped me. That's beautiful. And what age would you want her to be at? Since you've already had her as a dream of a baby, what, what age would be uh, your, your dream age for her? I mean, probably as I knew her. She was 70 when I was born. So I knew her in her older years. That's cool. Well, thank yeah. Well, if you have that dream, please let me know. I'll let you know. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You know, thank you so much. And as we wrap up, is there, where can people find the book? Anything else you want to say on the topic before we wrap up? Sure. Um, there are links to, to purchase the book at donnastonum.com. So feel free to do that. We have an Amazon link and indie bookstore links and local bookstore links for it. I invite people to engage with me, sign up for my newsletter. I do regular blog posts as well. 
uh, join me on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, and those links are also there. Any way I can be of help and support to anyone on a grief journey, I welcome that. I do see that as part of my work these days. So it's been incredibly lovely talking with you. What a great way to start a Sunday morning and look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast. I think it's a real gift to the world. So thank you so much for having me, Joshua. Joshua.